This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. Now, the show's about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. And if you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in LA, check out the toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get fundamentals like body language, eye contact, dating, attraction, vocal tonality, networking, negotiation, business relationships, and management, all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And we have our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California, Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp or give us a call in the office here or just email me. I'm Jordan at The Art of Charm. I read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here in LA at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Chris Taylor. We're going to talk about the value of curiosity. So the ROI on curiosity, balancing contentedness with ambition, the win-win-win of successful negotiation and the one question that can move you past any obstacle. All this and more on this episode of The Art of Charm. Enjoy. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is Chris Taylor. I run a company called Actionable Books, uh, where basically we distill ideas from popular business books and make them available so busy people can put them into practice quickly. Um, I've been doing that for about six and a half years, and for the last two and a half years, I have been uh, nomadic, to use the uh, popularly growing term, where my wife and I have been uh, traveling the globe, living in different environments. Um, so that's the gist. Nice. And so were you always doing that? Was that something that you grew up saying, I want to be nomadic and location independent? No, absolutely. And I don't know who actually does that. I, uh, does no, that. I, like exactly. Like all of us, right? I wanted to be, what did I want? I wanted to make movies, Jordan. That was my, when I was in school, I wanted to make movies. How's that going for you? Uh, you know, it's good. I, I get to put my artistic flair into the podcast that we do and uh, fun little side projects. But I learned in film school that you really have two options. You could either graduate and be a grunt for 20 years and eventually maybe work your way up to something greater than delivering coffees. Uh, nothing against people that are delivering coffees. And then uh, the other path was you could go out and make your fortune somewhere else and then come back and, and create your own production house. So I chose the latter and we're in the middle of that uh, journey. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. It's always fun to uh, do the c creative stuff. After living in Hollywood, I'm, I'm like, okay, good luck with that. Because it's, you know, that's a brutal battlefield for creatives, even smart people. Sure. It's like podcasting. It's hard to get your signal through the noise, even when your stuff is good. Yeah. Well, and it's always, it's, it's sort of become a joke, right? I mean, it's, it's now become my, my plan B is that I'll become wildly successful making movies. Uh, because it's, you know, you go off on that other path and then realize that actually I love it over here and there's a good chance I will stay here and probably not go back to making movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd mentioned there's an ROI to curiosity itself. And that for me was interesting because I was raised along with probably like everyone listening who's over 30, I should say that if you're farting around, messing around with stuff after age 10, 12, whatever, you're just breaking it or you're not learning, you're not studying. And meanwhile, it looks like all of the household electronics that I took apart to see how they work 
had a little bit of return on that investment, but you don't see it for you know twenty five years. It, what's the ROI on curiosity itself, and and why should we be paying attention to that type of thing when we're raising kids, when we're even when we're looking at ourselves and feeling guilty about quote unquote wasting time messing around with stuff or or ideas or or gadgets or whatever. Yeah, you know, I think for me, it comes back to I had a conversation with uh, a guy named Mitch Joel a couple of years ago, he's written a couple of great books. Um, and we were talking about this idea of the squiggly career, um, which was basically what Mitch would say, you know, Mitch was a radio uh, journalist, and then he was in A&R, and then he went into advertising. And then it's all sort of come together into this digital media, um, intellectual property piece that has become his platform for, uh, you know, fairly sizable business. And we talk about how that never would have happened had he stuck on the straight and narrow. And I think it's so easy for us um, on ourselves and also on our kids to say, all right, so you're showing, you know, a predilection towards math. So you should really just double down on math and do all math and really become a PhD in math and just own that niche. And what I've started to see, and I think we see this all around us, is that real value, like the breakthrough kind of value comes when we connect previously unrelated ideas. You know, there's this, uh, this Shell commercial that sticks in my mind of like Shell oil from the 90s, I think, where there's this father and he's taking his kid out for lunch at, you know, it's sort of a McDonald's, although they don't show McDonald's. Um, and he gets this idea for a new drilling technology from the way his son uses a bendy straw to suck up the last of his milkshake. And to me, it's sort of this, you know, this metaphor of if he'd been on his BlackBerry responding to email and digging deeper into his niche, you know, then I say BlackBerry because it was the 90s, um, then he would have missed this insight that comes from being aware of the world around us and from sort of prodding with curiosity into things that we don't have an expertise in. Which I think, you know, is nerve wracking for people because we want to be seen as an expert on something. And so we don't, I, even prepping for this conversation, Jordan, I was like, oh God, what am I supposed to be an expert on? And just, you know, trying to take a step back and go, well, maybe that's not actually the most value I can provide. And maybe we can instead, you know, help sort of generate some, uh, some new ideas or, or at least spark some curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, getting people thinking is kind of the main idea behind what we do here in the first place. Uh, and getting them to put things into actual practice and, and take action is is the other 50% of the equation. I mean, it's a cliche, right? Children are curious. It just gets sort of like beaten out of us, maybe by the school system and stuff like that, certainly by our parents after you break the third tape recorder and they're like, you know what's inside, <laughs> goddammit. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that. I think that staying curious, it's like the Dosa Keys commercial, Stay Thirsty, my friends. It's like staying yeah. curious and looking at stuff I'll spend hours, maybe better spent on business stuff, but maybe not, messing around with like audio gear or like, what if I do these 10 different things to my website or to my show? And then occasionally, but not occasionally enough to make it not worthwhile, I'll stumble on something where I'll figure something out. And then suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, tons of people are finding us as a result of this. Or, or wait a second, this made the show sound better. Or wait a second, me messing around with this format thing has made us totally unlike other shows. I mean, there's so many accidental discoveries that I get from breaking stuff and from trying stuff. And my business partners used to yell at me like, why did you do that? It was working. And I'm like, you know, the whole, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I never really got my mind wrapped around that. I was always like, it works great. Let's ruin it for a few days at to <laughs> extraordinary cost and see if it's any better. Oh, it, it's not? Okay, cool. Well, that's my bad, but I'm not going to stop doing that. And and we've found a lot of things through that. My business partner and I, now we break everything. That's how our company started, was reading books on like networking and socialization and then going out and being like, we tried all this and it doesn't work that well, but here's some stuff that does. 
And I think that people who do that in their industry or in whatever industry they want to be in, those are the people that end up innovating a lot of the time. Yeah, no, no question. I think, you know, there's obviously a balance, right? There's, I mean, there's those people that flit from thing to thing. And, and I mean, yes. the part that, that is unstated in your case is that you've also got, you know, a drive and a focus that balances that. But I think so often we do put the emphasis on the focus and we, we forget about or downplay the need for that balance with curiosity. And, and I think, I mean, your examples are a great example of how that really works in the long term, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm kind of going through this now, or at least sort of maybe coming through the other side of this. So I, I'm curious to hear your opinion. It's always nice to build something bigger and do it larger and get something higher ranked and make it more popular and blah, 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 bigger, better, faster, stronger, whatever. But I'm also really happy and content with how things are going. But I feel this almost I, almost like a guilt. Guilt's not the right word, but it's like I should be moving forward more. I should be doing more of this. But also I'm really happy where we are. And I know a lot of people experience this in every industry that they're in. A lot of the finance guys that I know, like these hedge fund guys, they have no time, no life. They can't do any of the stuff they're excited about. They're living vicariously through things, well, like my show, which is awesome, but also through things like, you know, oh, I'd love to be able to go and do this trip with you one day. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I'm doing it like twice a year. <laughs> you know, you have tons of opportunity, tons of advanced planning. It's not going to be difficult to get you on this trip with me. And they're like, yeah, I can't take a week off work. And I'm, even guys who want to come to boot camp at the Art of Charm are like, oh, I could never take a week off work. And I'm thinking, if you can never take a week off work, your job must be so freaking fun that you just never want to leave. Like, you must have the best job in the world. And it's always, like, not even close to the best job in the world. They, they like, hate it. They're there 24-7. And they're there because they feel like they need more. And there's just no reason for it. It's, it's like this Wall Street syndrome yeah. that you have. And when I was there and when we had – I was taking a class with a, a managing partner of a firm in Chicago, Kirkland & Ellis, a big firm. And he was like – we asked, well, how come lawyers work so many friggin' hours? You know, yes, we need to bill, but how come they don't just hire more people? And he goes, raise your hand if you would work half as much for half the money. And the whole class raises their hand, except for, you know, like two gunner dudes who are just addicted to the cash. It was hilarious. And he's like, well, that's exactly why. Because they don't just pay you half. They've got to get everybody office space. Everybody's got insurance. There's so many costs for having more employees, so they just rather work you to death. And I'm like, this sucks. You know, that that's not even fair in so many ways, and yet it's so fair because the whole point is we chose it in the first place, thinking, like, yeah. I'm not going to be that guy who gets stuffed in this. Yeah. So how do we balance the contentedness that, that, we, fe that we might feel where we are now with the ambition? And, and this is a little bit different from people who work for the man and people who work for themselves, but I'd love to hear about, about your feelings on this. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think in one hand, yeah, I mean, people that have a direct impact over their compensation, then, you know, it's maybe more directly tied. But I mean, there's also the even if you're on a fixed salary, and you don't, you know, you're not actually compensated for the extra hours, you still, there are people that work their ass up to try to get promoted up the ranks faster, or whatever, whatever. I, um, I had a conversation recently with uh, Bo Burlingham, who uh, just had a fabulous new book come out called uh, Finish Big, that, um, you know, ostensibly is written for entrepreneurs, but across the board, and we were talking about um, lifestyle businesses and what that actually means, right? And, and how there's some people who will disparagingly refer to a business as it's either a real business or a lifestyle business, right? With some sort of implied connotation that if you are happy in the work that you are doing, then it's not a real business, 
right? And there's this, there's this yeah, weird, yeah, no right? yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's like this weird expectation that if you need to be miserable in order to be actually, you know, in business, like a real business person, maybe it's, maybe it's Hollywood that does it. I don't know. Maybe there's that, and our parents sure as hell do. Like, it's like if your dad doesn't come home kicking every and screaming, it's like, well, obviously, he didn't work very hard today. I don't know yeah. what it is. I really well, don't know. He came home at 4 o'clock, right? It's either, did you get laid off? It's like, no, I just felt the need to actually spend time with my children. But that's not actually. Uh, Jim Collins wrote a book that wrote about the Stockdale Paradox in Good to Great. And it's, you know, it's this business concept, but I've, I've thought about it in terms of life. And Stockdale Paradox is this ability of strong managers to have one foot planted firmly in reality of what are the circumstances that need to be addressed right now while never losing sight of where we're going long term. You know, it makes sense as a leader, you don't want to be ping ponging between the two in the weeds on the horizon in the weeds, you know, but I think for life as well, this idea of balancing choices, the choices that we're making and, and being consciously aware of the choices we're making. I'm okay. So I'm about to launch a book and there's this major theme running through it about how there's really three types of choices that we make. They're either unconscious choices, conscious choices, or deliberate choices. Unconscious being the ones that we don't actually think we're making, right? Like you go look, work at a law firm, you work 80 hour weeks because that's what you do. You don't think that that's a choice. Yeah. You don't, you don't think, yeah. Well, it's, it's not according to your boss, a choice of any kind. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we take this, you know, the path. It's the same thing with after high school. For a lot of us, it was like, well, now I go to university. I may choose between which one or which college, but I go because that's what I do. Right. Without really questioning. The conscious choice is the one where we're making decisions and we think we're being proactive about it, but it's, it's under societal expectations. So it's this idea of more, right? This constant pursuit of, you know, I got to have this kind of car. I'm working towards that kind of house. And so we're making these choices in favor of what we think will make us happy, but it's not based on any sense of personal reflection on actually what makes us happy. It's based on what we, the world has told us, you know, will make us happy. And then the third, those deliberate choices are the ones where you've sort of gotten tune with, you know, what are the values I want to live by? What's important to me from a how I spend my day standpoint? Those are the choices where we can actually get into a place of balancing ambition with contentedness because that ambition is focused on, tailored towards something that actually means something to us as opposed to I should be working for, I should try to get to a quarter million a year because I'm at 150. So the next logical step is to get to 250, right? Or whatever, without actually thinking about, why? Like, what does that actually mean to me? And I'm not against money or material possessions of any kind, but instead about sort of connecting with, does that actually matter to me? Or is there something in the current reality that I could be enjoying that would actually counterbalance the drive for something that may not actually mean something to me at the end? Back to the show. Yeah, it's tough to look at this objectively because it's feelings based and people don't really think about that. They're like, no, I can measure because you can measure ambition or the results of ambition, I should say, in dollars, but it's really hard to measure happiness. And a lot of times we think I'm feeling pretty good right now. Wait a minute. Am I just rationalizing this because I'm not making money or do I really enjoy this? And then you're like constantly second guessing yourself. It's almost like we have to take money off the table, which isn't totally realistic because I like making money so I can do stuff and play with toys to make the show sound better or live in a cool place. Like, I like that stuff. I think about money a lot less now than I used to, and I think that's the one of the luxuries of having some is not worrying about it all the time. Um, but in the beginning of a business, you can, you could, it's really hard to go, 
well, I'm working from home and I love my freedom, but oh man, I'm going to get evicted next week. So I'm going to have to work from your home. Yeah, no question. No question. There's there's a minimum threshold, right? And I, I think, you know, I think of like Maslow's hierarchy of need. I mean, there's a certain amount of cash that we need to, to make the pain go away of constantly thinking about it. But then above that point, you know, I come back to this idea of curiosity, right? Finding that ROI and curiosity. If you are constantly experimenting and sort of testing different things like salsa dancing looks interesting. What if I tried that? And you go, no, absolutely not. Hate salsa dancing, whatever. But then you know, and then you're not constantly living in this world of, well, I think I'm happy, but I'm not sure if I'm happy because I think maybe that would make me happy, but I don't know. We get If we get out of our heads and actually just, you know, coming back to your point from earlier, do something, put something into practice, right? If you have an idea of something that might make you happy, you know, we talked about this with Spain, you know, we moved to Spain for a year. And before we did that, because we thought it would make us happy, we thought, well, we should probably just go first because neither of us had ever been. So you go for eight days, you tour around, you stay and try to stay in local places and sort of see what it's like. And it's not the full experience of living there, but it gives you a taste that allows you to then act a little bit further. Right. And I think this, yeah, so balancing that contentedness with ambition, we can test our ambitions rather than saying, I think 30 years from now, I want my life to look like this. So I'm just going to put my head down and work for 30 years without you know popping up for reflection. There might be value in experimentation along the way. Gotcha. I mean- you told us a little bit about your show and things like that, but you publish a lot of work. I mean, you you create a lot of things. Uh, yeah, I try. I like to create. So, uh, so we have Actionable Books, which is a free resource with about 20 new business book summaries going up each week or each month, rather. Um, of what types of books? Every business or personal development or that sort of genre and anywhere about getting better, basically, as a person. That's awesome. So, Obviously, I, I must have given you the wrong address for my free trial of this service uh, because I don't have any. But that sounds really awesome. It is all free all the time, Jordan. There's not a, you don't even need to sign up. You just go. It's all free. Oh, yeah. for God's sake. So you just go. People are going to love that. What, how do you make money? That makes no sense. I know that makes no sense. It's actually, from a business standpoint, it becomes a marketing platform. We, our paid program is called Actionable Workshops, and it's for intact teams, people that work with a group of people that want to take an idea. It's sort of like a, a book club on steroids. And I loved when you said, you know, the idea of putting it into practice. Our entire focus, hence the name Actionable Books, is how do you take this idea from this business book that was written at a 20,000 foot viewpoint, and what do you actually do with this? How do you make your life, business, company better? And we can track that and we have accountability tools built into it so that you can hold your peer group, your, like your team accountable to achieving those things or making those improvements. And that program's paid. And so that we have clients all over the world with that and consultants, business consultants who are our exclusive distributor partners. So we work with a really small group of uh, high, high caliber business consultants and it makes for a lot of fun because I get to work with people that think about this stuff and live in this space all the time and, you know, are making a lot of money, but they're making it as a byproduct of doing something that they love, which I know how cliche that sounds, but yeah. it's amazing when you find people that do that, right? No, but honestly, I love that idea because it, it, you do pretty much the same thing that we do, right? You create a ton of content, you give it away for free, people who want stuff will eventually buy it. And these are really interesting, this is interesting content because obviously, first of all, the books themselves are the stuff that a lot of the stuff can you give us some examples of the books because they're probably the things that we recommend on the show and then i go oh man i'm never gonna read that i have eighty thousand books in my house yeah no absolutely i mean we've got a lot of seth godin stuff with uh, purple cow and linchpin are in there We've got books like a book called Think or Sync, which I've sort of dubbed the science behind the secret. So it's actually got some some meat to it, but it's about that sort of world. 
Um, we've got books like The Four Agreements, The Warren Buffett Way. I mean, a whole bunch of different pieces that you could look at around communication, around self-management, around innovative thinking, finding, sort of reconnecting with that fire that drew you to your job in the first place. And then leadership, of course, is in there too. Cool. Do you read the whole book or do you just read the summary that, that is created? <laughs> um, I make a point of I don't write a summary or a workshop on the book unless I have read the whole book. But that okay. is not to say that I finish every book I start. It's probably more like one in four. Yeah, because I'm one of those guys who might I'd love to say I don't have time to read. It's partially true, but mostly what it means is I don't make time to read because it it's hard for me to sit still for that long. Surprise, surprise. I think everybody listening to me knows that I, I can't sit still even when I'm recording. It's the reason the microphone is drilled into the desk is the, <laughs> to keep me here. But summaries are excellent. Do you think that how much value can you pack into the summary versus reading the whole book? Like, are we talking 80-20 or is it like you're getting half and it's a teaser and if you like it, you should read the whole thing? Just totally blunt. Yeah, I don't think it's that, Jordan. I think what we do, our summaries are different. We take one idea from the book and then we talk about two ways you could apply that idea today. So it's all practical application, but it's one idea. I mean, if you read a book like Good to Great, there's probably 25 great ideas in there. So the way I like to think about it is that we're providing a buffet. Try whatever you want. It's all free. And then when you find something that you like, then go buy the book and dig in for the full meal because uh, there's lots of great stuff in there beyond what we pulled from it. Great. So it's just the practical application of a specific idea from the book itself. That's it. Yeah. Perfect. Great. That's that's an interesting product, actually. I love that. The other piece that I've got is I've got this the, my own book uh, coming out, which when you when you live in the business book space, that's it, right? You get bombarded twice a week with when are you writing a book? So I, you know, publicly declared last summer that yes, I will write a book, and then settled in for the most agonizing sort of twelve months of my life. It's really hard, Jordan, to write a book. It turns out I had no idea. Oh, I can't I imagine. <laughs> I never plan on doing it, frankly. And everyone's like, you should write a book. What you never plan on writing a book, and I'm like, hey, listen, don't don't get too down. It's not that there's not going to be a book that comes out. It's just not going to be me sitting there with a you know quill and ink or even a keyboard writing it because it's never going to happen. I'm going to hire someone. They're going to sit and listen to this painful style of conversation for as many hours as it takes for them to take notes, and then they're going to write something freaking brilliant, and I'm going to take credit for it. That's how it's going to work. Jerry Vaynerchuk, man, crush it, right? I mean, sold how many millions of copies and he dictated the whole thing in about three hours, right? Like just into a, into a tape recorder and then someone typed it out and edited it and he said, yes, Gary stamp of approval and away it goes. I think that's public knowledge. I hope he doesn't get pissed about that. When you read that book, you can tell it's that type of creation and that's good though because when you look at certain books and you, you meet the author, you can tell if they're a dull person and the book is exciting – that's uh that's a clue. The other person, the other clue is if they're really exciting and the book is dull because they wanted to sound really really smart. Right. And very very highbrow and it's just like, dude, you ruined the book. You should have put up a YouTube video series instead of a book and it would have been way better. So, for me, I want my book to sound kind of like this only with proper spelling and grammar if possible. I think it'd be a great book, Jordan. I'm just waiting for it now. So, <laughs> Yeah, so mine's on uh, this deliberate choice, the topic of um, of how we actually connect with what's truly important to us and make choices based on that, as opposed to the, you know, the choices that maybe are expected of us. And this whole idea of, you know, deviating from the standard path is actually kind of a broken model because there really is no standard path now. It depends on what your social circle is. There's no like universally defined, this is the path, right? So keep finding that group of peers. And I think, you know, it was a point that you brought up earlier around 
that whole idea of, you know, if you're in the Wall Street crowd and you're, and you're traveling with that group, then, you know, you can start to doubt and question yourself, putting yourself in a different situation or a different social environment. And suddenly the value shift is sudden, right? And you can determine whether you're more aligned with that or not. And so anyways, that's the area that I'm playing in. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun because I've got to interview people that have accomplished amazing things outside of what might have been expected of them along the way. So lots and lots of conversations around how people went about achieving things that maybe even weren't on the table in the first place or uh, certainly weren't uh, made aware to them originally. You do have good, interesting conversations with a lot of the people that you interact with in terms of high performing. Right. But, you know, turning boring conversations into valuable ones is actually a skill set that you and I discussed earlier. And I, I think that's really important. I think a lot of people are not able to do that and they find their own conversations being dull and they're like, what's wrong with me? I have great conversations sometimes. I have boring conversations other times. And I think that it's a learnable skill, obviously, because mm -hmm. a lot of people learn to do it and a lot of people get taught that at AOC. But what's sort of your theory on this? I mean, you talked about leaning into the conversation. Let's explore that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, when you talk about being an engaging conversationalist, I think, you know, there's the storytelling component. And, and to your point, I mean, I think there's there's certain structure that we can learn and, and hone and practice through that side. Um, and I think that that comes and I think, you know, programs like what you have are, are great at, at helping to establish those. And then there's the other side, which I think we can start to put into action immediately, which is on the listening side. I mean, if you're a great storyteller, then you're going to be appealing to most people. Um, but if you are able to show genuine interest and elicit, you know, genius from the person that you're talking to or with, and they feel, you know, like they are really contributing to the conversation, you're going to win almost anybody in that situation. And so this idea of leaning into the conversation is, you know, I sort of reframe it and say, um, you really want to consider being selfish in the conversation, not selfish in owning the platform of speaking, but selfish in trying to get something from the conversation that actually is interesting to you. It's this investigator mentality of really looking for an interesting story or anecdote or insight that that person has tucked away. And nobody has done a better job of this, in my mind, publicly than Alex Bloomberg of This American Life and now Startup. And I was on his Creative Live course the other day, which is brilliant if you're interested in storytelling and for those out there that are interested in podcasting, which, right, Jordan, is the easiest way to make a million dollars. Isn't that right? Podcasting? Yeah, podcasting, yes. It's the, the quickest route to wild riches. It's funny because obviously before we clicked record, we were talking about how that it's the worst way to make any money at all. It's the it's a great way to waste a lot of money on expensive gear that you won't use. But that looks really nice and makes you, makes you feel great. It's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The storytelling piece. So the idea of being able to pull out, there's something interesting about every person you interact with. If they are a functioning adult human being, I don't care what their upbringing was, they are going to have something interesting to share. And if you take that mentality of there's something here, damn it, and I'm going to find it, even if they're the most boring person in the world, you will listen with the selfish intent of finding something that will make you better for it. And as a bonus, you're going to make them feel like a million bucks because instead of you sort of glazing over and looking over their shoulder to see who else is in the room that you should be talking to, you're really getting into the conversation with them. And it is amazing how many times I've been on the fence of walking away from a conversation or finding some polite excuse to whatever, bail. And then you make the choice to lean in and inevitably 
there's something in there you're like, huh, I had not thought about that in that way or wow, that person has such a crazy viewpoint on this. I didn't even realize people thought that way and what does that mean? And just, you know, if we get out of the position of trying to defend everything that we're saying or be the expert on everything where there's no room for learning, then we can really get into some interesting space and it happens on a regular basis. One of the reasons I love podcasting on my end is because you get to have conversations with different viewpoints all the time, but you can do it anywhere, cocktail party or keg party. It's all about the conversation. Nice. All right. Excellent. All right. Back to the show. What about when we do actually want to ask somebody for something? I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with, well, any conversational skill. A lot of people who are networking or selling things or selling their business, selling themselves, they go through these sort of steps where it's like, I'm nervous to talk to people. Okay, now I'm talking to people, but I feel like the conversations aren't going anywhere. We can lean into it a little bit. Now, how do you work up the courage to actually ask for what you want? Because I think that's a kind of a missing step in a lot of people. You always hear from salespeople like, oh, ask for the sale, ask for the sale. But people who aren't salespeople are friggin' terrified to ask people for anything. Well, I think, you know, I start from the position of the assumption that most of the people I'm talking to are not susceptible to Jedi mind tricks. I'm not going to be able to convince them to do something that they genuinely do not want to do in most cases. Um, now, having said that, I've, I've been able to get people to do things that may not appear to be something that they originally thought of. But I think that the mentality of I'm not talking anybody into something. We're going to approach a position where we're both happy with whatever the outcome is. That's my going in position, which I know is like the go for the win-win thing is, is fairly overplayed. But that's sort of my own framing of it, which anchors it for me because go for the win-win means nothing. It's the I'm going to get into this where they're going to get out of this what they want. Okay. And then take this position of the win-win-win is what I try to go for. So I'm going to get what I want. They're going to get what they want. And they're going to get something that they don't know they want yet. And that's that third piece that I'm looking for the opportunity to delight. So I, I realize it's a little vague. I'll give you an example. We were in Spain for about nine months. And then those who have been spent time in Spain know that this happens in the summer months. Rent goes up like tenfold in most places. It's, it's outrageous. Car rentals, everything just through the roof. And, you know, we've been fine, but we didn't have enough money to pay 10 times what we've been paying, uh, nor did we really want to. And so we started looking around and we'd met this British couple who were in their mid-70s, spent most of their time in Spain, found the summers a little hot and wanted to go back to the UK to visit their friends. And they had this house. And, you know, we sort of asked peripherally to other people, you know, do they rent it? And they're like, no, 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 they don't rent it. They don't like the idea of renting or having strangers in their house. Uh, okay, fine. But what do they want? And as we got to know them, we realized that one of their big concerns was this safety issue. Spain's not as dangerous as, as it gets in the public rap. But if you leave your house open for three months in the middle of nowhere, you know, there's a reasonable likelihood that it's going to get uh, broken into. Okay. And so they didn't love that idea. And so that's how we approached it. So we said, so, hey, if this is a safety concern for you, we'd be more than happy to stay here. We are actually don't have a place yet for the summer and we'd be more than happy to take over the house. And they'd never had, you know, the idea of a house sitter before in their head, but they saw it as this, oh, that'd be amazing. And then when we were there, we went to town on, you know, cleaning and like, sprucing up the garden a little bit. And then we were also... Uh, Amy, my wife, made this like flip book. They had this incredible stone wall, and she made this like sort of find the animal in the stone wall thing that just was perfect for them. They loved it, and that was like the extra little bit. So when they got back, they were just so ecstatic and asking, you know, do we want to come back this summer? And what does that all look like? And I think you know the point with it. And I got a few other examples, but the point with it is that if we'd said we need to rent a place this summer, will you rent it to us? You know, and then the response is no, we won't rent it to you. 
then you just you can either start to try to push through that, which in my experience never works, right? Or find the way around it so that you're still getting what you want. We didn't actually want to rent it. We just wanted to occupy it. So what does that actually mean, right? Actually defining what you really want out of it rather than, you know, putting tighter parameters on it than necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the other piece is that, you know, we had the opportunity to ask their, you know, sort of mutual friends, which was helpful. But another way that I found to do it, and we did this with the car that we got for free, was hypothetically, this is the statement, hypothetically, what would we need to do to make you excited to let me do X, right? Whatever it is. So hypothetically, I know you don't want to rent me the car this summer. Hypothetically, what would we need to do where that would actually be something that was exciting to you? Not that you'd be willing to do it, but that you'd actually be like, that's amazing. What a great deal. And that question, that reframing, they really don't say no to that because you didn't ask a yes, no question. You're giving them a, it's, it's just a sort of a, almost a thought exercise, right? It's like, what would it actually look like for you to be excited about this? Um, and, uh, and then it actually gets the conversation started. And the visual in my head is that we go from being across the table from each other to being on the same side of the table with the objective on the other side of the table. And we're sort of looking at it going, okay, so I see the part that's interesting to me. Where's your part? You know, and, and we're on this together because otherwise it's never going to fly. Perfect. So do you use these same types of skill sets in things like negotiation as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I come into it, you know, I have a no asshole rule, right? Life's too short to work with assholes. And again, I've got the luxury of this to a degree where it's my business, but we've taken the approach of I'm not interested in being in business in any relationship with someone who's just going to be a dick, basically. So we're going to have a human conversation about what you want out of this, what I want out of this and how we make that fit. And it's fitting the puzzle pieces together as opposed to trying to push for every penny. And I've taken that mentality, too. And I think, you know, I think most good business owners will tell you that is that if you nickel and dime on everything, you're going to get nickel and dimed right back. If you sort of take the approach of I'm going to work with good people, I'm going to trust them until they prove otherwise. And we're going to go about this together and, you know, call it when it's not going the way it's supposed to. But be okay with the fact that they also need to make a living and that if they're making their living while they're working with you, they're going to go 10 times above and beyond what you would have saved if you'd nickel and dimed. And I just found margins go way up when you don't nickel and dime, in my experience. Great, yeah, why do you think that is? I think because people are tired of being sort of treated like a commodity or treated like someone to be stepped on. And when you treat them as a partner, whether they're a client or whether they're a supplier, when you treat them as a partner, they're, they're eager to give back to that relationship. You know, I was, th- I was listening to your uh, conversation with Adam Grant from the other day, and this whole idea, I think people genuinely want to be in those relationships where they can give. Not everybody, right? But this comes back to the no asshole rule. If you are working with the majority of people that are genuinely connected to what they do, they want to do it. And most entrepreneurs, when you're working with the founder, most of them are. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. Um, and give them an opportunity to step up and you know go above and beyond. They, they do, in my experience. And you, know, you can call it naive or whatever. But I, I think it works and it makes for a way happier existence, both professionally and personally. Great. What are some of the biggest takeaways you've gotten from those authors, from those experts that you've started to implement and see real results from? Yeah, there's been a ton of great stuff. Just, you know, learning some new concepts and also, you know, different ways that people are viewing things. But probably, you know, and people that know me know I'm are probably tired of hearing this, but but Seth Godin has been hugely influential in my life. And some of the questions that he has posed have just been hugely impactful. And so the one probably biggest one is this idea. Uh, I went to a session in, in upstate New York. There was about 25 entrepreneurs. And for the entire day, basically, we paid Seth a lot of money for him to walk around the room going, what do you want to have happen? 
I think that was pretty much it. That was like the takeaway from the session. And it was amazing how that, I know, <laughs> that one question of what do you want to have happen worth every penny? Because I think we get so caught up in the, well, if I do this, then this is going to happen. And I don't know about that. And we just get so like down the rabbit hole of what might be, right? Or, or potential ramifications. And this question, what do I, what do I want to have happen? in this situation just cuts through all the bullshit right to the end result. And it's amazing how magically it's like, oh, and that's the most logical path to take. So that idea of what do I want to have happen is just being hugely impactful at helping me move past so many different obstacles, things that pop up and gets us past overthinking them. So that's been, that's been a big one. Ah, why do you think that's so simple yet works so well? I mean, it's Let's go through an example of this, right? Because sure. I think a lot of people are thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, what do you want to have happen? Wait, wait what does that mean? I mean, because <laughs> yeah. for me, this sort of makes sense, right? Like, what do you want to have happen? Well, you know, I need to do this because I need to have money so I can do this. Well, no, what, what do you want to have happen? Well, I want to educate my kids really well, so I need a lot of money. Well, do you want a lot of money or do you want to educate your kids really well? Like, I can see the dialogue happening here. And then you start to come up with like, well, wait, maybe I don't need a lot of money to educate my kids really well. Well, if I don't need a lot of money to educate my kids really well, but I need a lot of freedom, then I should be doing things totally different than what I'm doing right now. You've just slapped that question onto the the mothership there. So well done, because that's uh, that's even bigger. That's bigger than I've taken it. I mean, I, I think that makes tons of sense, Jordan. And you're right. It, it creates that dialogue. I'm talking about simple stuff like we're doing. Uh, we're actually launching a separate online property, and so we get into the the feature set and the page layout, and the, do we have an app? Do we have blah, 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 all the different stuff that goes into that? And so we get all caught up in you know what's the color palette and how does this thing flow? <laughs> yeah, and right. you know, and you just go well, wait a second. What do we want to have happen? Oh, we want people to sign up and buy our shit. Right? It's like, yeah. Okay. So okay. then everything can get sort of recalibrated um, to say, how do we advance towards that, whatever it is? Right. Right. So let's worry less about it being blue and white and shiny and like more user friendly or like stuff that people actually care about. Yeah. Let's really get into, you know, let's get the basics down first and then we can worry about some of the other stuff with that same question in a different application, right? Like on this page, what do we want to have happen? Uh, I want them to go over to this page. Like, all right, well that, you know, it's clear now as opposed to wait, does it go above the fold or below the fold? Well, what do we want to have happen? And just really like that becomes the mantra on all new initiatives that we launch on, you know, if I'm going to a networking event or if I'm talking to a new client, it's like, what do I want to have happen? And once you can clarify what that is, it really helps you to zero the path down so that when you go, this is coming full circle, when you do embrace that curiosity, you're doing it intentionally where you're saying, okay, that's where I want to go. I am going to deviate, but I'm going to do it deliberately because that's really interesting to me. And so if I pursue that things that's interesting, at least I know where I'm coming back to. I'm not just randomly going over there because I, I know what the path is, but I'm going to try this out because it's really interesting. So let's go explore. Well, this may be a good place to wrap, my man. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you definitely want to get out there? <laughs> no, it's been a lot of fun, Jordan. I, uh, I appreciate it. And where can people find you, actually? Uh, they can head to actionablebooks.com. It's probably the best bet. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. My pleasure. I hope you guys enjoyed that one with Chris Taylor. It's really cool to hear the ROI on curiosity, right? All those tape recorders you might have taken apart as a kid, all those VCRs that you ruined, all those appliances, and everything that you've tried and failed at actually has a return, even if you don't know it yet. And I love the balance of being content with being ambitious, figuring out the right reasons for doing things, figuring out what you need to be happy. It kind of goes right to that one question that can move you past any obstacle, really. What do you want? How do you want it to turn out? What are you looking for? 
and then uh, the rest of the way sort of paves itself. Of course, you have to travel the road on your own as it is. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I think there's a lot of good info here as usual, and special thanks to Chris. Of course, we'll have actionable books and everything linked up in the show notes as well if you want to grab that from him. Of course, show feedback and guest suggestions, those all come to me. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. I work for you guys, and we rely on you to keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit for the show, let us know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed it, don't forget to thank Chris on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Live program bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep It's really the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing, and you can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm Podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking on subscribe. That is it. Of course, we've got our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm Podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week. Leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 